Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. The law and the Christian, we come to the end of Leviticus, but we're going to do that this morning by turning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Here's the question I want to open up with. If the law is as wondrous as David sings, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. If the law blesses those who keep them, protects those who keep them, is necessary for acceptance into God's kingdom, and is the key to wisdom and understanding, why then has it become such a source of division, dispute, and destruction? In the scripture, we read of the religious leaders using it to control and condemn others, while even today, pastors and churches will use the law to control and condemn each other. Whereas in the political and cultural wars, we see unbelievers, the secular people, those who do not believe in Christ, use the law to attack and condemn Christians. As we finish our study in Leviticus, it's important for us to answer, or to at least consider the questions of what is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What is the relationship between the law and the gospel? And how do we interpret today and apply Old New Old Testament laws. In Leviticus, we have learned that God is more interested in our pursuit of hope, holiness rather than our pursuit of satisfaction and happiness. Leviticus is a necessary part of the unfolding story of God's plan to reconcile man to himself. Leviticus answers the questions of how a holy God can relate to sinful people and vice versa. How do we as sinful people relate to a holy God? God, knowing our tendency to mission drift, has graciously given his word to guide us in our journey. And for the ancient Hebrews, God gave them the law, which is found in the book of Leviticus. The law is God's stipulation for God's covenant people. And the law consists of the commands and the prescriptions that were given at Mount Sinai to Moses to regulate the lives of the people of Israel. These laws are part of God's redemption plan that was promised in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve. But we also learn that the ritual sacrifices and festivals, the mediation of the of the priests, the purity laws and the holiness codes, along with the Day of Atonement, were just temporary in, in, in nature. They pointed to something, to someone that was greater, that would secure for all time, for all of God's children, eternal salvation, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, and that is kept in heaven for us. This wonderful, gracious, amazing gift of God leads to the recipient or leads the recipient to respond with gratitude and love as God calls his children to three things, to worship, to holiness, and to obedience. Yahweh has called us to worship him by pursuing holiness through loving him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And we learned that this meant pursuing holiness of, of others as much as we pursue our own. The law was given to depict, to describe, to demonstrate, and to find what it meant to love God and to love others or love our neighbors. Without the law, we would not know what God's expectations or how to even do those things. The question today is, are we commanded to still obey the law given to Israel that we've read here in Leviticus? Are we called to obey the ritual and purity laws? Do we need to pay attention to what we eat, touch, and so forth in order to be holy or in order to even draw near to God? To answer that question, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 18. It's here on the monitor. Begin. I'd love to see your head down looking at the book rather than up at the monitor, but I know that there are times that you may not have it. But Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 18. Let's what, see Jesus had to say. And when Jesus speaks, it should be like E.F. Hutton. We all listen. See, see, there's someone that's old enough to remember what that commercial was. This is what Jesus taught. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass on the law until all is accomplished or fulfilled, whatever your translation may say. Let's pray. Father, so help us to understand that. As we study the book of Leviticus, we want it to be more than just an ancient text for an ancient people in a land far, far away with a culture so different from us, something that's just a history lesson that's quaint and something to go back to and then forget. But Leviticus should be alive to us today, relevant. So help us as we consider these things and we, we deal with them and we get into sometimes the weeds of those commands and your laws and your expectations, but also your grace and the fact that Christ has come to fulfill all those things. So help us to understand and to respond. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So are we still called to obey the laws and observe the holiness code? One theologian answers this way. No. Simple, simple answer. We are not the nation state of Israel under this covenant. Remember, this was an Old Testament covenant. This was a covenant given to a particular people at a particular time. You and I are not called to be a political, geographical nation distinct from other nations. Israel is not the United States, okay? So these particular laws do not apply to us. However, we are still called through Scripture Nevertheless, to be a special people, to be set apart by and for the Lord. So while we may not be a country, please understand this, we are called to a church. We are called to be not an organization, not a corporate non-fictional entity that does business in the state of California, to be a body of believers that are covenanted together. The Church of Jesus Christ is still called to be holy and for the exact same reason. A quick look in reading of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14. If you're a sword drill, you could get there before I can even get here. But if not, just listen. It confirms this as Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Get that. Before Christ, you lived in ignorance. We don't like that description of ourselves, but yet that's how scripture describes us. 
But just as he who has called you be holy, so be holy in all you do. Now, here's the theological question. What does all mean? Well, in this case, all means all. That's all that all means. Just as it's written, be holy because I am holy. So we are called to be holy just as Israel was. And for the same reason, because Yahweh is holy and we serve Yahweh. So this foundational call to be holy is still in place for you and I. It will just look different and be demonstrated different than it did then. And the reason for our call is to be holy is because God is holy. We are still called to be distinct and different from the rest of the world. We have to look and live in a different way than those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That same theologian that I, that I quoted earlier remarks again that the intent of the law was never to make some legalistical standard that everyone could live up to by sheer force of will. And I'm, a, I'm afraid that there are many Christians who believe that they can follow God's will by just the sheer intent of their own will. And, and that, that's not the case. But it was to remind the Israelites of how they were to be different And now that the promised Messiah has come, the principle is the same, but the manifestation, the way that it's lived out, the way that it's demonstrated, the way it is made known is different. We have things like baptism and the Lord's Supper to remind us of our uniqueness and special obligation to be ethically upright. So we focus on our hearts and we guard our hearts so that we can be different in areas such as evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All those things that scripture tells us will not be into the eternal kingdom. Now he goes on to write that we have a slight issue here. Can we just disregard then all the commands of the Old Testament by saying, well, that was for the nation of Israel then and we are the church today? Would that also mean that the Ten Commandments don't apply to us? Well, we need to understand the difference between the two types of law in the Old Testament. We haven't spoken much about it, but there was a prescriptive law and a descriptive law. Prescriptive law was a bedrock foundation law that was rooted in the very character and person of who God is. Hence, do not steal, do not lie. Why? Because these are the character of God. He does not do that. And God never changes. Amen, right? Descriptive law is an application of how that prescriptive law is given to any society, and that can change as culture changes. In other words, prescriptive, be be holy, be separate, be distinct from the world. So in that case, the, the descriptive was for them not to touch, handle, and eat of certain things, the same things that the world would do. So how we might live that out is different. But the prescriptive, be holy, do not lie, do not steal, is is still the very person and character of God. And as our father is, so shall his children be. So with that edification, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the purpose of the law. Why did God give the law as part of the redemption plan? Was the law work-based? Was it just to control others? Well, take your, take your viewing if, to the monitor, if you would. The Baptist Catechism states, 
that the purpose of the law since the fall is to reveal the perfected or the perfect righteousness of God, that who God is, that his people may know the path of faith that leads to life, how they should live, and that the ungodly may be convicted of their sin, restrained from evil, and brought to Christ for salvation. So scripture tells us as we continue that the law was given, number one, to teach us. The Romans says what was written in former days was written for our instruction. Number two, the law was given to be our example. As Paul says, these things were written as an example that we may not desire evil as they did. The law was given as a shadow of things to come. In other words, it pointed to the true form of these realities, the writer of Hebrews says. But it was not able to to accomplish what it was able to do. Number four, the law was given to be our guardian. In Galatians, Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. But scripture was imprisoned everything under sin. So then law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified in faith. In other words, it was our guardian teaching us and training us and protecting us of what God's expectations was. Revealing what God's character was. Showing us how to live our lives. Number five. Most important one, this law was given to point to Christ. In John, Jesus said, said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life. And it is. And it is they that bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so in it, it points to Christ, not to the works that the law called us to, but the fact that Christ would come to fulfill the law. You see, the law was part of God's redemptive plan to define who are his children. For the law, it was the children of Israel. To describe what is expected of them, to be holy. It also gave them to determine how they should relate to Yahweh in the ways in which they worship and to each other, their civil and and, and ceremonial laws and the surrounding nations. It also demonstrated their worship through loving obedience. This is how you may worship me. This is what I expect in my worship. And lastly, the law was part of the redemption plan of God to detail the promises of God for obedience for those who would obey, but also his warnings for those who would disobey his commands. Yet in the end, the law was not successful. For you and I can read Leviticus, see the plain, see the beginning of God creating this little, this little uh, nation here in, in, in the wilderness. And we, but we know what happens in Joshua. We know what happens in Judges as all things, as men do what's right in their own eyes, as we work our way then through the rest. It could not accomplish. It could not bring people fully to God. Though it could modify behavior, It could not change the heart. And hence why God promised a new covenant. See, there had to be something better, something greater, something that that was almost like a stoop for us to understand and see. One that would enable the child of God to truly desire the things of God. For the law could not make you desire the things of God. It could just point you to God. It could point you to the person of God, his character. Turn, if you would, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31. 
for centuries. Israel had been in a cycle of rebellion, rebuke, repentance, and restoration. Time and time again, that's what Judges shows you. And then as you work your way through Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles, as you get to the the writings of the prophets, you see it time and time again. Until finally God punishes Israel with defeat by their enemies, destruction of their land, and finally exile to a foreign land for their disobedience, just as he promised not only in Leviticus, but also later in Deuteronomy. In this passage of Jeremiah 31, God now speaks to Jeremiah, the prophet, promising that he will not forsake his children forever, but he promises them, I don't know what I'm saying there, but he promises them a new covenant. Look at verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the law of Egypt. He's talking about that at Mount Sinai. He's talking about the book of Leviticus. My covenant that they broke, (coughs) though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will now make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within uh, my law with them within them, and I will write it on their hearts. You may want to underline that or just highlight that in your passage. Maybe you already have. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. He had promised that already many times. But now he's going to permanently do so. Look at verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each teach his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No longer is he saying is there going to be necessary to teach them the law, to bind it on their heads and to follow the holiness codes. There would no longer be any distinguishing marks that they need to follow in that regard. No longer no sacrifices. Why? Because I will remember their sin no more. There will be no sin. Jesus proclaimed at the Last Supper on the night he was betrayed. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What's the new covenant? Jesus is saying, my, my sacrifice, my, my substitution for you, my shedding of the blood is the opening of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrew remarks that in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So is the law for us today? No. What is coming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrew also writes that Jesus is the mediator, mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first commandment. Dr. Thomas Schreiner writes that the law has been brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ And therefore, believers are no longer under the prescription and the description of the Mosaic law. Instead, believers are under what we would say the law of Christ, which centers not on purity laws, sacrifices and festivals and lambs and bulls, but it centers on Jesus himself as the sovereign and authoritative interpreter of the law. 
Believers fulfill the law in their Christ in their love for one another as those who have circumcised hearts under the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and indwelled by the promised Holy Spirit. See, we have something greater than that which was given in the book of Leviticus. He goes on to state that the New Testament teaches that the Mosaic law is brought to its fulfillment in Christ and is no longer binding upon God's people. It was a temporary setup for us to be able to see our need to be holy as God is holy. Our lack of ability to do so. One theologian sums it up this way. God's people, Christians, therefore, are not under the law covenant and we're not bound to obey its prescriptions. Instead, as members of the new covenant, they have the law written on their hearts so that they inwardly desire to obey God by loving him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. Put simply, he goes on to say, Christians are under the law of Christ and they fulfilled that law through love. And though the Mosaic law was holy and good in itself, it was not able to produce a holy people. We understand that. However, Christians are able to keep the righteous requirement of the law in this way because we now live in the age of fulfillment and are dwelled by the promised Holy Spirit who enables us to live in a manner pleasing of God. So we don't need a list of purity laws and holiness codes and touch, taste, and handle to help us lead because it's in our hearts to love God and to love our neighbors. So are we to observe the ritual sacrifices and festivals, the restricted dietary laws, the strange customs about mold, skin diseases, and washings? No. But some may say, well, then that means what about the other laws that dictate moral moral laws and, and civil regulations? And many times those that are opposed and even hostile to the Christian faith will use Leviticus as a weapon against Christians and our beliefs. When you and I would use Leviticus in the Old Testament law for our stand for traditional marriage or our stand against sexual sins or against abortion or against things of that nature, they are quick to point out as they can, what they consider as contradictions. <coughs> Excuse me. They will quote verses such as Leviticus 19.19 where it says you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. What about that? You shouldn't do that. Leviticus 19.27, it says you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Well, you're not following that. You're not, you're eating, you're eating bacon, you're eating all sorts of things. So why is those laws not to be followed, but yet you want to stand and say that it's wrong for homosexuality or bestiality or incest, things of that nature. You see, it's as if these commands excuse their desires to pursue happiness and satisfaction outside the promises of God. But they do not. One pastor counters their objections with the observation that the Apostle Paul does carry over some of the moral norms of the law as authoritative for Christians. For example, 
Christians are commanded to honor their father and mother in the New Testament. Paul teaches that love fulfills the law, but several moral standards of the Old Covenant continue to apply to the believers. These include adultery and murder, stealing, lying, coveting. The prohibited—I'm not going to be able to say it. The prohibited against idolatry. What is the to prohibit idolatry? Also, clearly continues to stand for those in the New Covenant. So we understand that Jesus and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament comes back with the Ten Commandments and says that these things are still binding. These are things that we should still do. These are the things that God will judge us for. We'll turn to Matthew 22. Our answer to that question of aren't these contradictions? Why do you stand against these things if you do not stand for these things? To them, that is unloving. That is unkind. It is bigotry. It is prejudice. Our answer should point again to Christ. In Matthew 22 and verse 36, Jesus taught us that the law of God is summed up in two principles. What is the greatest commandment in the law? He asked the teacher. Verse 37, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second in verse 39 is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, when it really comes down to it, what holds us together, what to be holy is still to love God and to love others. And what we see when we look at the law is look at those laws that, that, that promote loving God and loving others and those that strike against that. And I don't want to go over it again. The message, I already preached it once and I encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. When we looked at those things, Is when we sin and we cause others to sin, that is not loving others. That's not pursuing our holiness and it's not pursuing their holiness. Paul writes in Galatians that this sums up the law of Christ when he writes in Galatians, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through your love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So for us, we would stand against sexual sins, against abortion, for traditional marriage, because we believe those things promote loving our neighbors. Not bigotry or prejudice or unkindness, but pointing out those things that are evil, that are against the creative norms. Galatians 6, 2, he commands Christians to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, to love and care for one another. Our call to pursue holiness through loving God and others is still in effect. Scripture teaches us that believers express their love by obedience to the moral norms, to those things in which God loves, to the very character and person of God. Now, those norms are not what the world teaches as normal, hence why we live in a world that's hostile to their faith, or to our faith, I should say. Their normal is saying, you need to move this. It's interesting what they're needing to say. And unfortunately, I am starting to hear Christian pastors and teachers and professors and seminary professors start to teach the same thing. 
is that not that the world needs to change, but that the Bible needs to change and that our teaching needs to change, that our thinking on these things need to change. I see you shaking your head, but I'll have to share with you, you know this, is there are many that are following that lock, stock, and barrel. They're changing their minds and hearts and distancing themselves from the law of God. These norms are not what the world teaches as normal, but those things which express the person and character of a holy God. Please take your Bible once again. Turn to Mark chapter 7. You and I are not made holy with foods and festivals and other works. <clears throat> However, as we've seen, our call to be holy remains. It just manifests, it makes itself, it demonstrates itself in a different way as we live after the cross. Thousands of years later, on this side of the planet, in Mark chapter 7, look at verse 18, Jesus said it this way, Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, and, but into his stomach. And then out of his body in saying this, Jesus declared all foods are clean. He went on, when come, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From, 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 for from within, out of man's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, these things. All these evil, he says, comes from inside and they make a man unclean. And we live in a world that wants to not only approve of these things and affirm these things, but they want to codify them in law and they want you to affirm and approve them as well. See, the law does still serve a purpose even though Christ has come to fulfill it. For the law is still good and pure and holy. Why? But because it points to a holy God. Those laws were not just some type of, of you know, uh, little things that he just pulled out and said, well, let's just make some rules. They revealed who God was and is. The law is still needed for you and I to reveal sin for evangelizing. I think, I can't remember his name, it's, uh, way of the master, maybe, comfort, great comfort, uses the law. I don't know if I would actually do that very often, but it does do that. It exposes what sin is. The law also still points to our need of a savior, for we cannot obey God in and of ourselves. That is why so many hate the law and the word of God today. Why do they want to discredit the law? Why do they want to discredit the word of God? Because they seek to discredit, to disregard, distract, disparage, and destroy it. Jesus warned that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That's why they don't want to listen to what we have to say. That's why they don't care what Leviticus says. That's why they try to find disputes and ways to destroy it. You see, the word of God, including the Old Testament law, exposes the sins in our hearts. And listen to this, because this is what I want you to understand. Because you would, you would say amen to that. It exposes the sins of our heart. But let me tell you, this is also what the law of God, God does. Even Leviticus. It exposes what you truly love. The law exposes what you 
truly love and desires. It shows you what you go to for when you go to sin. It's where your heart is. It's where you put your treasure. So what sin are you struggling with today? What is it that continually stumbles you and paralyzes you in your pursuit of holiness? What God is saying is the problem is why you have not defeated it, why you have not been able to lay that aside is because you truly love that sin. But also what it does is the law of the word of God exposes the futility of our pursuit of happiness and satisfaction outside the promises of God. It exposes that what you truly love when you sin and when you choose it. There's no love at all. But it's folly. Proverbs says that. Do not seek the other woman. What's the other woman? What's the adulterous woman? It's folly. It's actually it's foolishness. It's sin. But seek wisdom. The law is wisdom. The famous German monk reformer Martin Luther wrote of the law that God must have a mighty hammer to crush the rocks and a fire burning in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains. That is to crush that stubborn and perverse beast of presumption. When a man has been brought to nothing by this pounding, despairs of his own heart, power of his own powers, his own righteousness and his own works, and he trembles before God, he will in his terror then begin to thirst for mercy and forgiveness of sin. So the law is a hammer that is busting the rocks of the loves of your heart, exposing them for what they truly are. That is why David loved the word of God and he hid it in his heart. It is to the law that David plead, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. To know what truly holiness is, is to reflect yourself not to someone else, but to God himself, to the original. Be holy, not as Rob is holy or Landon or Randy is holy. Do not be holy as John MacArthur is holy, but be holy for as I am holy. But what you and I like to do is we like to compare ourselves to the lowest hanging fruits. We're like the Pharisee who comes to the, to the, the throne of God and says, I'm glad I'm not like him. Instead of denying the law and seeking to ignore it or to affirm, approve, associate, or ally ourselves with the world in its pursuit of happiness and satisfaction outside the promises and the, and the prescription of God, you and I are commanded in Ephesians 5.11 to take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead you and I are to expose them. The world does not want it exposed. Hence, when we do so, they want to minimize, disregard God's word. There are Christians that are finding themselves to, in order to be accepted, to have the approval that they need to unhitch or remove themselves from the law of God. Cannot. 
For it still serves a purpose for you and I today. It is for our example that we may not desire sin as they did. I would pray that you would embrace the law. Let its hammer do its job on the rocks of our hearts and expose those things which are not loving God and loving others. That way then the gospel can come and the healing balm of the gospel, the aroma, can bring the healing that God has promised. Let me close with this. In a day when holiness is neglected by God's people, not by the world, by God's people, you and I need to be reminded that we're to be holy as God is holy. For God blesses holiness. Thankfully, Jesus himself has taken on the curse of the Mosaic Covenant, all those curses for those who disobeyed. And he has provided the perfect obedience that that same covenant of God required. What you and I see now is the gospel. For all who repent of their sin will receive the promised forgiveness in Christ, and therefore we're now able to relate to a holy God. We can come before his presence with boldness and confidence. Leviticus doesn't merely detail animal sacrifice and holiness codes. It does do that, but it does so much more. It exposes the heart of a gracious God who provides a substitute for sin of his repentant people. And that substitute not only receives the death penalty in our place, but what we see is he also obeyed in our place, gaining for you and I today the blessings of holiness. Under the new covenant, Jesus empowers for us for holy living by first granting us a new heart and a Holy Spirit. We should give thanks to the book of Leviticus. It is God's word inspired to expose not only the heart of a gracious God, but also expose the heart of his people. A call to worship, a call to holiness, and a call to obedience. What you and I need to understand is that Christ needs to become our treasure. That's what the law did. Treasure my commands, treasure my heart, treasure my promises, treasure my grace. And the response was to believe and to respond in the call to worship holiness and obedience. They failed, but God has now enabled us to do what Israel could not do. If you bring your eyes to the monitor, I want to just close with Philippians 3.8 with the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing wealth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. May your loves be the loves of God as we pursue holiness by loving God and loving others. Let's close with a word of prayer as the worship team comes up. Our elders will be up here in the front for any encouragements and prayer. I want you to just take a moment to pause to consider what I've shared this morning, what the word of God has to say. Would you pray and you would ask the Holy Spirit, 
how should I respond this morning? Should I embrace the law? Have I, have I disregarded the law? Have I recognized the importance of the law? For without the law, we would not have the gospel. And I pray today, maybe you can need the gospel. Maybe you've been living by the law. Let me share with you the fertility of living by the law. For one who is guilty of one point is guilty of all. The one who lives by the law is condemned by the law, Scripture tells us. So I pray that you'd come to the Christ who's fulfilled it in his substitutionary death and his perfect obedience. Would you come to him this morning? Father, you're so good. We are not deserving of the gifts of the law or of the gospel. But yet in your wonderful grace and wonderful love, you've expressed to us how much you desire us. You have revealed yourself through your law, through the gospel. So Father, may we embrace it for our good, for your glory. May, it, may the law do its work in breaking down and exposing our sin and our illicit loves. And may the gospel come and heal and direct us to your wonderful love. We thank you and praise you. Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we lift up, I believe, my one comfort when all these things will be known. Would you join us? Thank you for being here. By the way, next Sunday we'll be starting a new uh, Christmas series, uh, Five Promises of Christmas. So I encourage you to be here. It'll be a great time to start inviting people and friends and family. Uh, Five Promises of Christmas. We'll be taking the, uh, the month of December to look through each and every one of those promises. God bless. Thank you for being here. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.